Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we are at that point in our uh, structured study of jhana um, where we're at one of the most um, primary and important suttas, teachings the Buddha ever gave. Uh, this, is, this describes the human condition that the Buddha awakened to. Uh, and this is one of the most misunderstood and misapplied teachings uh, if you if you care to take the time and do a website a web search on dependent origination and the um, all the other names that are attributed to this like dependent co-arising uh, and interdependent uh, co I, I can't even describe these things but even the word like interdependent and dependent have two completely different meanings and yet using something like interdependent co-origination is often the title and then a fabricated explanation of what it means. Uh, some of them are really wild, I mean, they, the conclusions they come to. But even uh, a book, the third book of the Pali Canon, the Abhidhamma, which is what most of Theravadan Buddhism is based on, and the, the Abhidhamma is not something that the Buddha taught. It's a very magical, mystical, always grasping after, and in, I would say impossible to most people with normal intelligence to even uh, make any sense of. Yet, uh, in there, it's given all these different qualities, uh, a completely different presentation than you'll hear um, today. Um, so this is what the Buddha awakened to, the common human condition that leads to all stress and suffering and all distraction. It is the preoccupation with maintaining our ignorance of four noble truths. And notice the Buddha is not saying that all human beings are just basically ignorant. Very specific ignorance. It's ignorance of four noble truths. But it's these four noble truths that describe our humanity. And so we become distracted away from anything that would cause us to recognize our own ignorance and adopt the four noble truths as right view. So let me just get to it. Uh, like I said, this may be two parts. Uh, kind of depends on how much I get into it. And if you have any questions about this, just, just holler out, please. This is very important, Sutta. Uh, yeah, just one more thing, just a little bit of background. Uh, many of the suttas, at least half of the suttas, by inference, I can kind of gather when the Buddha presented them, meaning was it early in his teaching career, towards the middle or towards the end. And sometimes you can figure that out um, by the setting or the people that, that are mentioned in the sutta. Um, dependent origination, even though it was so important and what the Buddha awakened to, was not the first thing he taught either. And there's a reason for it, and, I, and you'll understand that, uh, especially in our study. I didn't lead off with this either, because it takes a little bit of uh, foundational context before this will really make sense. So, um, my wild guess, speculation, is that the Buddha probably taught this about six to nine months into his career, teaching career. He already had a large following, and he already had given, 
probably at least 45 to 60 suttas. The, the Buddha taught almost every day. Um, and most all of those suttas are still recorded. That's what we're teaching from. Uh, so he didn't start off with this, but once he realized that the original Sangha had the uh, conceptual background to understand this, then he taught this. And this is um, a, a foundational teaching that the Buddha teaches in other suttas. Sometimes he teaches nine forms of dependent origination, only in, the, in this sutta he teaches all 12. Uh, but they're all relevant, and even the ones that have uh, six or nine uh, links are relevant to whatever the subject matter is. But this is the broadest um, presentation of dependent origination. Dependent origination implies that stress and suffering is dependent on its origination for these conditions to be uh, uh, to be in place. They're required positions. The Buddha was at Savati at Jita's Grove, Anatha Pandika's monastery. And this is, again, getting back into the background context, this is where the Buddha began his teaching career. And he would come back here year after year, but because of the setting, I think it was probably six to nine months into his teaching career. The Buddha was at Savati at Jita's Grove, Anatha Pandika's monastery. There he addressed those assembled. Friends, I will describe in detail dependent origination. Listen carefully. And what is dependent origination? Dependent origination states that from ignorance as a requisite condition come fabrications. That's the first uh, foundation of ignorance or stress and suffering. From ignorance. Now, everything the Buddha taught was in the context of Four Noble Truths. So from ignorance of Four Noble Truths, as a requisite, as a required condition, come fabrications. So ignorance of Four Noble Truths is not a natural human condition, but it is acquired, and it is required for what follows from ignorance of Four Noble Truths. But what the Buddha describes as what follows is all manner of human suffering. From ignorance as a requisite condition come fabrications. Fabrications are a corrupted view of ourself in relation to the world that that establishes that ongoing stress and suffering experience as five clinging aggregates. A fabrication is rooted in what the Buddha describes as anatta. The Buddha describes anatta as the not-self characteristic. And what the Buddha is saying using that phrase, which was completely contradictory to the way it was used during his time and today, is that it is wrong views of self that we are using to describe a self to ourselves and the world around us. They're wrong views. Let go of those views. Notice the Buddha is not saying that there's no such thing as a self simply that the views we have of a self are wrong views, let go of the views. And then the Buddha would often describe the condition that follows from that wrong view as, as in the Buddha's words, is from a misunderstanding of self, from a misunderstanding of what constitutes a human being, we create everything that is other than self. And most of the translations take that to, to give license to the establishment in non-physical realms, as if that charge was a, was something that we should be trying to do, creating something other than self. What the Buddha is saying, that because of a misunderstanding of self, we create others, any, everything other than self as a way of living in the world. That's where all stress and suffering arises. That's the fabrication. 
So fabrication, again, this is why this might be a long uh, two or three part chapter. A fabrication is not, um, uh, it's not creating a cartoonish characterization of ourselves, although we do that all the time. But even the notion that, um, that even the notion that I must be the world's greatest meditation teacher and acknowledge that way, even though internally I strive to be the best meditation I can be, if I have to be that, I'm stuck in a fabrication or anything else. And most of us will, will whatever we do for a living or as a profession, will create a fabrication over that, even no matter how altruistic it might be. And that in and of itself creates a stress and suffering for, for, for ourselves. And it can for other people around us simply because we're not being completely authentic to what we're doing. And that doesn't mean that if we're engaged in altruistic or charitable, and I, I think almost everyone here has talked about that, that our, our professions tend to be geared towards helping others in some way. That doesn't mean that we're completely inauthentic in it. It does mean, though, if we have a fabricated view of who we are in relation to it, usually experience like um, almost like we must be doing what we're doing. Rather than a lightness and gentleness about it, we're probably caught up in a fabrication. And I don't want to get too far in that, but the point of a fabrication is that every human being, no matter how altruistic or compassionate their life might appear, is living in a fabricated view of themselves. So it's very subtle. It's not something that is often obvious. But that that subtle aspect of a fabrication can manifest in some human beings as very um, very egregious pathologies. But they're all rooted in ignorance of who and what we are. They're all rooted in a misunderstanding of self now becoming anything other than self, including the sometimes monstrous, monstrous ways that human beings carry themselves, the awful things we do. But again, that's not the focus here. It's not to, it's not to end horrible behavior. It's to end the conflict in our minds that we create because of this first um, establishment of dependent origination. From ignorance as a requisite condition comes fabrications. From that mind now established in fabri- a fabricated view of itself, because of ignorance of Four Noble Truths, the Buddha teaches from those fabrications, as a requisite condition comes consciousness. An, an incredibly important line, excuse me. Because what is the Buddha teaching here? And he, and he hits us right between the eyes right off the bat. Because of ignorance of Four Noble Truths, we create a fabricated view of looking at ourselves and the world around us and our relationship, excuse me, to the world around us. That fabricated view is now feeding consciousness. And remember, this isn't consciousness with a capital C, a grand cosmic consciousness. The Buddha never teaches anything like that. Consciousness as the Buddha is using it and as I'm using the term is simply ongoing thinking rooted in what? Rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And it's ongoing consciousness that is rooted thought by thought and that initial fabrication that is lacking understanding of Four Noble Truths. Uh, is everybody following me so far? No questions about this? I think that um, I'm writing. <laughs> I'm writing some notes. Okay. And I think that um, I've got, as a requisite, comes consciousness. Um, and then 
pictures, then it wouldn't be consciousness. So did that get mixed up? Um, no, but I'm interested why why ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance wouldn't constitute consciousness. Oh, okay, great. That, that, I'm glad you brought it up. So again, we're consciousness in the sense that I'm using it, and it really is the only human use of consciousness, is ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, or that consciousness is displaying an awakened quality of mind. So the, again, we, we need to, as far as Adama is concerned, we, we need to lose any notion that the conscious, that consciousness, human consciousness, is anything other than ongoing human thinking that is expressing a certain viewpoint, meaning rooted in a wrong view or a right view. Is that clear? It's not consciousness in terms of awakening. It's the consciousness of the fact that there is an ignorance to the Four Noble Truths. And once that consciousness is created, that leads to an awakening. Yes, but it's the same consciousness. It's the same consciousness. God, yeah, I mean, thank you, Louise. It's such an important point because we're not, we're not creating. Because if, if it was, if somehow we could create some type of uh, superhuman consciousness, then we would be creating something other than self, wouldn't we? And that's why I'm making that distinction because we're all kind of caught up in this. My first, um, my first interest in so-called Eastern philosophy or Eastern religions came from a a movie that I saw when I was 13 or 14 um, called, oh, I can't think of it right now. Ah. It was a movie that was set during World War II. It's on the tip of my tongue. About an, uh, uh, an airline, uh, uh, an, an Army Air Force pilot who went down in an area of the Himalayas that he through his trek, came across Shangri-La. And it was this wonderful land populated with, with people. Boy, it's right there. Uh, with wonderful no, people. What is it? No, I read it last year. I know exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, populated with, with these brilliant, with a, a one aged brilliant master who was later told was, was infinite in age and a bunch of other people. But it was just a beautiful place. Anyway, that was my um, that was my beginning interest in Eastern philosophies was the ability to live forever and, and to bilocate and you know travel around the cosmos and all this stuff that I thought was somehow the result of gaining these secret knowledges. So I spent a lot of time chasing that knowledge until I realized all that that was was a distraction to me. And eventually, I came to the Buddha's Dhamma and realized all of that was just a distraction. But it's it's such an important point. Um, I might lose this. Let me let me continue. From that consciousness, remember, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. From consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form. The Pali word for that is nama rupa, which some of you might have heard. But that's what nama rupa means. It means name and form, and name and form simply means I've given a name to this form. The name that I've given it is John. Nama Rupa, name and form. I am self-identifying with this form as me. We learn when we in the through the rest of the Dhamma and the five clinging aggregates that this form is as impermanent as anything else. 
and to self-identify with this form is only going to lead to stress and suffering. From name and form, from self-identification with phenomena, from name and form as a requisite condition, comes the sixth sense base. From the sixth sense base as a requisite condition comes contact. So the sixth sense base is our five physical senses and the sixth sense of consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. That consciousness is now the interpretive vehicle for what's coming into contact with the five other physical senses. So now think about that. If the interpretive vehicle that we're using to describe ourselves and our life to ourselves and others is rooted in ignorance, every description, every label is going to be a fabrication. Even though that label might might actually um, mirror reality. The, the truth of the matter is, is I have a physical body. The truth of the matter is, I am a meditation teacher. The truth of the matter is, I have a, I have a dog. But when I start fabricating around these, these objects of my life, even the, the physical reality of my life then becomes a fabrication. R- rooted in my view of myself in relation to Four Noble Truths. Not knowing stress, not knowing the cessation of stress, not knowing my contributions to stress. From the sixth sense base as a requisite condition comes contact. So you notice here that the Buddha... i got to check something because I'm nah, running out of battery. Up until this point, dependent origination could be said to be taking place or um, forming outside of time. Because now the Buddha is putting us in the physical world. I am coming, after this progression from a mind rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths creating a fabricated view of what's occurring, now I'm coming in contact with the world. What has transpired prior to that contact is a fabricated view developing in my mind. So now everything that I come in contact with is viewed in the root of in the from the view of that fabrication. From contact, from that type of contact, as a requisite condition, comes feeling. So now I'm describing and creating a sensual view of the world. My sensuality now is informed by fabrications, not by the reality of what's occurring, not by a dispassionate, impersonal view of what's occurring. Notice what the Buddha, and again, this is how this relates to jhana meditation. The Buddha taught us in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness how we begin jhana meditation to first recognize that we're distracted by feelings and thoughts attached to feelings. What do we do with them? When we recognize that in jhana meditation, we take a breath, we unite our mind and our body, and we cease being distracted by feelings or thoughts. Why? Because that feeling is referencing a fabrication. And that feeling is only going to drive grasping after other feelings that we deem as appropriate. Usually what we, what we deem as happiness. But we can also get caught up. There's a great book called The Dopamine Nation. And in that book, and I won't get too deep into it, she describes the nature of addiction, but in ordinary terms. Not, people get addicted to anything that begins this dopamine flood in our brains. And that can be anything. It could be a a beautiful sunset, a baby's laugh, or a bottle of vodka. 
the the effect internally is the same on the brain. And what what one of the fascinating parts of this is once the brain starts getting involved in that, and again, it could be anything in the world, it first creates a dopamine response after pleasure. And another dopamine response when pain ensues as a remembrance to what makes me feel good. And as we keep filling, fueling what feels good, in my case it was drugs and alcohol, but human beings do it with everything. And it could be just a need for another sunset, a beautiful sunset. Then the pain cycle starts gaining more preference. And we start, and we start preferencing behaviors that lead more to the painful aspect of the dopamine response rather than the pleasure aspects. And again, I don't want to get too deep into the psychological aspects of it. Uh, For one thing, I'm not a therapist and I'm not a trained psychologist, so I can't do it justice. But it's what occurs. From feeling as a requisite condition comes craving. So again, I'm using I'm just using that to describe the phys- physiological response that Siddhartha Gautama realized 2,600 years ago. I've had a feeling. I like that sip of vodka. It created a, a, a craving in me. I like that that sexual relationship I had last night. I like that beautiful sunset. I like that that beautiful baby smile. I like that wonderful conversation. It made me feel good. I want more comes craving. From craving as a requisite condition comes clinging and maintaining. And here is where the second aspect of that dopamine response gets triggered. The painful aspects, clinging and maintaining. Why? Because I've I've described to myself that that thing that made me feel good, I need more of it. How did I come to that conclusion? Because I don't understand impermanence, which means I don't understand anything. In that moment of pleasure, I've created an ideological fabricated view of myself and I fabricated a need that that self must have. And now, unless something comes along in my life to interrupt that way of thinking, called conditioned thinking, I am compelled to chase after that. And as human life develops, we pile one fabrication onto another fabrication onto another. But all is not hopeless. The simple act of jhana meditation coupled with the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path is the path the Buddha gave us to interrupt that process. From that clinging and maintaining as a requisite condition comes becoming. This is how the Buddha is describing birth in the only sense that that is useful for Dhamma practitioners. Not a physical future rebirth, but giving birth in this moment. That's what becoming refers to. Becoming self or because of a misunderstanding, becoming anything other than self, a fabricated self. And it is that fabricated self that is prone to stress and suffering and ongoing distraction. From clinging and maintaining as a requisite condition comes becoming. Clinging and maintaining comes becoming, becoming further ignorant in this moment. From becoming, in parentheses, further ignorant as a requisite condition comes birth. Again, the Buddha is not talking about a physical birth at all. He's describing what am I giving birth to in this moment. And that is the only creative process that we should be concerned with as Dhamma practitioners. 
What am I giving birth to in this moment? In jhana, it means that I want to give birth to another moment in concentration. For, for those of us that have developed refined mindfulness, we can then take that creative aspect and apply that dispassionate, impersonal view to every aspect of our lives. And so if we're engaged in altruistic and compassionate deeds as a consequence of our profession, we will simply be more effective at it. Why? Because we're present for it. We're not adding a fabrication on top of our own good deeds. From becoming as a requisite condition comes birth. From birth as a requisite condition comes aging, sickness, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. Now again, the Buddha is not saying that because of ignorance we age, but we react to aging. Remember how the Buddha first described dukkha or stress and suffering. He said birth is aging. Giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance, birth is suffering. Giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance is suffering. Simply as a consequence of having a human life, there will be suffering. That human body, that human life will experience aging. It will experience suffering, sickness. It will experience death and the fear of death. Along the way from birth to death, it will experience grasping after what it needs, what it wants. It will experience loss. It will experience getting things that it does not want. And the Buddha would always conclude that description of stress and suffering as saying this, in short, the five clinging aggregates are suffering. The Buddha continues, now, what is aging and death? Aging is decrepitude, brokenness, graying, decline, weakening of the faculties. Death is the passing away of the five clinging aggregates. Why, why is the Buddha pointing this out here? Because that's the end. We don't have a choice. We don't, we don't have the opportunity to awaken once this has occurred. Death is the passing away of the five clinging aggregates, the ending of time. The Buddha never ever taught that we get another chance at, in some future life if we did enough good works in this life. So what's the most important good work we can do? Wake up. Wake up. Take to the Dhamma and awaken. The interruption in the life faculties. Now what is birth? Birth is the descent. Listen to how he describes this. And this may seem like an incredibly negative way of looking at the world, but remember he's describing to us the nature of suffering so that we can understand the nature of suffering. And it is through understanding the nature of suffering or our own contributions to stress and suffering that I can extricate myself or end that suffering. Now, what is birth? Birth is the descent, the coming forth, the coming to be. Birth is the appearance, appearance of the sixth sense base and the five clinging aggregates. Now, what is becoming? Becoming is sensual becoming, form becoming, and formless becoming. What is that form? Again, this is a line that people use to say, see, the Buddha taught non-physical reality. No. He, he's teaching this in, this in the context of stress. To create a form, a fabricated form in the world is stressful, and create an imaginary formless, a non-physical reality is also stressful. And what is clinging? Clinging and maintaining. There are four types of clinging. Clinging to sensory stimulus, clinging to, to views, conditioned views, clinging to precepts and practices, thinking 
and believing that through rituals and practices we can somehow gain understanding. And again, the Buddha mentioned that 2,600 years ago, and a great majority of modern spiritual practices, not just Buddhist practices, are rooted in rituals and practices, and those types of practices, and clinging to a doctrine of self. Anything that would continue a fabricated view of self is a doctrine of self. And I'm going to end, end it there because I think I covered a lot and there should be at least two classes. Um, so um, let's go around the room and we'll, I want to hear what you have to say. And I hope you understood what I, what I said. I covered a lot, um, but it really is very basic and it relates to that first um, aspect of the, of the 12 foundations, 12 clinging, the 12 causes of dependent origination, meaning from ignorance of four noble truths, comes a fabricated view. So we're here to recognize and interrupt that process of ongoing, uh, of giving birth in an ongoing way to a fabricated view. Jeff, what do you think? What do you have to say today? Jeff, are you there? Uh, we'll come back to Jeff. Maybe you had to step out. Tom, how are you? Um, yeah, good. Thanks, John. I'm glad we're doing it in two, two parts because there's, there's a lot and um, I think it's good to sort of take it slowly and to really digest it. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done a kind of a little, almost like a mind map mm, linking, you know, going from ignorance at the beginning to um, uh, birth at the end um, and it all makes... You know a lot of a lot of sense to me so i don't have too many questions other than um yeah i guess it's the the key thing is just to root it it's to go at the root isn't it of the problem yes um, which is the ignorance of four noble truths and sort of um if i'm to compare um what what the Dharma brings, which lots of other worthwhile, perhaps, um, you know, stress reduction techniques and this, that, and the other bring, um, this is the difference. Like, for example, people mm. can say, I mean, I, I've just actually recently got, got into yoga a little bit, which I never have before, um, but I see it very much as a physical practice, yep. um, and, it's, and it does make me feel good, and it's good for my flexibility and stuff like that, but... Um, it it still doesn't. So it's, it's, it can be worthwhile doing, just as many other activities can be worthwhile doing. Yep. But if it's not getting at the real root cause of our suffering, then it might, you know, alleviate some symptoms um, and stuff like that. And so it has value, but it's not going to the very heart of our suffering. And so that's what I find such, um, you know, so genius about yeah. the Buddha's teachings that what he woken to gets at the very, very heart and that's how you root it out. And and, and, and you, you know, you have this great big complicated you know um, link you know, you have eight whatever it is, eight or nine different links and it can feel a bit overwhelming, you know, because you're like, well yeah. obviously then there's the name and form and then there's six sense base and then there's contact and da da da. But actually it's very very that's the beauty of the practice, isn't it? It's so simple because all yeah. you have to do is if you can if you can knock it out at the beginning, um, then 
nothing else, it doesn't need to follow. All of yes. the successive links don't follow. So it's actually yeah. a, it's a simple practice, um, uh, obviously very challenging, but 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 simple, which is what, what appeals to me and, and um, very logical. So, yeah. so there, that's what I, I, I've taken from today's session. Right. You, you, you got it. Um, and any, um, any interruption of this process, of the, of the 12 link process, the whole, and it's a good way of describing it because when you break a link in a chain, the whole chain falls apart. The same is true from here. If you recognize an abandoned craving, for instance, the whole chain of dependencies falls apart. If you recognize an abandoned ignorance, none of what follows, obviously, can follow. And so there is a lot here, but it, it's incredibly simple. Uh, and it's also not something that we have to memorize, but just recognize that this process, and you started this out wonderfully well, Tom, by saying it, it keeps it simple and keeps the focus on ignorance of four noble truths is the problem. And that is the requisite condition for any other amount of stress and suffering that I'm contributing to myself and the world around me. So well put. Jeff, how are you? All right. Yeah, had to get the phone call coming in, uh, so I missed some of that discussion. But yeah, you know this uh, your your explanation of dependent origination is really struck a chord with me to begin with, John. That was kind of like the missing link for me, at least intellectually. Yeah. In un- in understanding uh, awakening, at least the mechanics of it. Uh, and um, <laughs> I sometimes think I should be using a different name uh, with myself to try to lose, you know, like like uh, the the person formerly known as Jeff or something <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to try to get away from that that uh, that 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 consciousness because it continually intrudes. Yeah. It's not that I don't understand this and don't 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 uh, viscerally feel it. It's just that uh, Jeff tends to intrude. Yeah, the, the Anata Jeff. It's brilliant. I, I really appreciate you uh, being able to uh, describe this so succinctly. Uh, thank you, Jeff. This is this is one of the suttas that when I finally came across, and most of the, uh, even the more worthwhile translations are still, have a lot of mysticism uh, that you have to wade through. But when I really understood what this meant, what this, what the, what the Buddha was teaching here, he's really saying, this is it. This is what I awakened to. This, when you couple this with the Nagara Sutta, well, for me, that's what started clarifying what the Buddha actually taught. Because, again, I spent many, many years in modern Buddhism and I very rarely heard even the Four Noble Truths mentioned or the Eightfold Path mentioned, much less taught as a path. And then when I, when I read this and finally understood it, then I could apply it to Four Noble Truths. Now I understood what Noble Truths means. These are the truths that are most noble, most important to me as a Dhamma practitioner. The truth that the, the sky is blue and there's oxygen and air, those are truths. But they're not noble truths because they don't relate to the Dhamma. They do, they do me no good in understanding myself, do they? So, it, and, and again, it's not that hard to understand 
And I would say it's not that hard to, to teach once you understand it. You know, to me, it's pretty obvious. My whole, the problem with, with my miserableness, if you will, until I came to the Buddha's Dhamma was ignorance. And no human being likes to accept the fact that they're ignorant, except, just using me as an example, except I was when I realized it wasn't that I was an ignorant person because I was a human being. I was ignorant because of a lack of knowledge of four very specific things, four noble truths. And those things I could understand, and I could very easily end my ignorance of them. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Louise, how are you? Oh, more so, yes. You know, like I can enjoy things as long as I don't need them. And I guess yep. if I'm enjoying something and ignorant to the craving behind that, um, then I'm, you know, clinging. And so I think it's just important to enjoy, to be present, but not attach it to any meaning about myself or who I am or, um, or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I'm still really interested in interpersonal relationships. I feel like I'd really love to be a theme on this because it's quite key for me, actually. Yeah. Just my journey and the contemplations that I'm sitting with at the moment. So I'm still interested in that because that kind of enjoying something but not needing it makes sense in relation to yoga and time with friends or shopping even you know like yeah. shops or uh, little things that bring you enjoyment fill up your tank buying fresh flowers like I buy fresh flowers every week like that kind of thing it, it makes sense with that but it doesn't make sense when it comes to interpersonal relationships I guess because I think that the, the, the not that we need to meet one another but I think there's a deepening of intimacy in an interpersonal relationship when we can move beyond the laissez-faire type approach. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just interested in understanding how this connects to deeper intimacy with anything, with anyone. I, I, Louise, yeah, I mean, that... You express a lot of right view because that's the point. But the same relationship that we that you bring to the new bunch of flowers you buy every week is the same Louise that you bring to your interpersonal relationships. And the the Dhamma makes the Dhamma can only enhance our interpersonal relationships and our relationships with a bunch of flowers. Why? Because we're mindfully present. We're well concentrated and we're mindfully present for what's occurring without the need for it to be any different. So our interpersonal relationships are, 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 are conflict-free. There's no tension there, at least with, with us. There might be in the other person. We have no control over other people and how they're viewing themselves or us. But because I'm... And I like that. I like that idea of actually the focusing in on the concentration because that's the opposite of being distant. Yes. Um, and I think the idea of, you know, 
associations of distance in a sense. Yep. That's why I couldn't link. But now I link it a little bit more that when you're concentrated, you're not distant. You're yeah. um, you're the opposite of distant. Yep. But you're not holding on to any meaning. Yes. Think about think about a, a a troubled relationship that you might have had or might even have right now, and remind yourself of the four noble truths in relation to how that relation how that relationship the interpersonal relationship feels. There is stress, craving originates and clinging perpetuates this stress in this relationship. There is a way to end this stress this 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 conflict, and the eightfold path is a path when you bring in mind that jhana mind that well concentrated mind. And the framework of the Eightfold Path that has taught you, then that relationship becomes stress-free and you are present for it. And and I think you'll find this out if you haven't already. Other people will feel this, whether they recognize it or not. People people know when you're present for them. You've had that experience. Um, you've, you've had it with other people that were mindfully, sometimes uh, good medical doctors um, will be able to do this. They have a good, it's called a good bedside manner. It's good because they're mindfully present for their patient. We're able to do that. But, um, but it's not just those interpre- It's Everything that occurs in our life becomes more meaningful, no matter what it is. Why? Because I'm present for it. This is the great gift of the Dhamma. To get to- it's not actually necessarily what's present now. It's just that I'm doing a lot of looking um, at patterns, I guess, for me based on Yep. And uh, I'm now much more psychologically robust, much more present, aware, healthier, and um, yeah, I guess yeah, more concentrated. Um, but how does this this work in terms of staying in things that don't serve us versus you know sort of like that idea of feeling something, letting it go? Um, if you just let everything go. <laughs> It's it's such an important question and it's a it's a rather common question and it tells me that you are gaining an understanding of the Dhamma because that's a again it's a common question and the question if I could put it in other terms is what happens to me when I let go of all views of self? Well you're not letting go of anything that's of any value. You're only letting go of wrong views of self. And what what happens then is your incredibly supple and powerful mind is now simply present for life as life occurs. Rather than stuck in the past or jumping to the future about what's occurring right now. Another way of saying that is for the first time, you're actually living this moment. There's no annihilation of self. You are... You are, you are motivated and informed by right view and a dispassionate view of what's occurring right here and right now. And it's a approach that you take in terms of teaching, say you were in an emotionally abusive type interpersonal relationship, you're not going to be present right here, right now for that, 
No, that that's the essence of, of a stress response, isn't it? You know, the more, the more, uh, I mean, I've had quite a few students that, that have diagnosed PTSD. Um, and this is the direct path. It's not to say that everyone that suffers from severe PTSD can do this at first. Sometimes they can't. Uh, hence the need for good therapy too, by the way. Um, but that, that, that it's characterized as the inability to be present with what's occurring while projecting what's not occurring into this moment. And that's that, again, getting into the psychological aspects of anxiety and depression uh, from an unqualified person, I shouldn't be doing it. But that's what occurs. That's why it takes us out of the present. And so the solution to all of that is to simply be dispassionately present with what's occurring. In, in each and every aspect of our life. And you will develop that even deeper, Louise. I mean, you're, you see it, you understand it, uh, you're not afraid of it. In fact, I would say you're, uh, if anything, be very gentle with yourself as you develop these, this new way of looking at yourself in relation to the world. So thank you for the, the great insight you brought today. Thank you. Mateo, how are you? They are. Thank you, Mateo. Um, yeah, I mean, just, just uh, to be honest with you, I, I honestly don't think that's, that's a risk for me because uh, I, I, it's purely a physical, it's, it's stretching. It's just stretching for me. I don't take, uh, there's no, uh, I don't take, I don't pay attention to anything outside of it. For me, it's a healthy exercise. Like, I also like running and I like uh, playing tennis. And so I, I understand your point. I can see how confusion can arise. And that's, that was the point, actually, I was making, right? That yeah. I think people can be like, oh, I'm, you know, it's a really spiritual practice. And I can see how some people could get confused. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, I don't see that in myself. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a pure, pure exercise. Uh, and it's yeah. good for me because I have terrible flexibility. I haven't been able to touch my toes since I was six years old. Wow. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, Mateo brings up a good point, um, and sometimes I bring it up, sometimes I don't. Uh, but yeah, they, 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 you cannot reconcile what the Buddha taught with what most uh, modern, um, the spiritual aspects of modern yoga 
Um, I mean, there's still people that call the Buddha a yogi and that he was a, a, somehow a Hindu and a Buddhist at the same time. And it, it's all very confusing. But again, the Buddha wasn't a yogi. He didn't teach or espouse anything that could be connected to yoga. And just on a personal note, um, I think that the philosophy, because of two body-based practices, I think that the philosophy of Qigong is a little bit more aligned with what the Buddha taught, even though it's not the same either. But I also think, just you know, my two cents, not that I ever have an opinion, uh, is I think I, if you did a web, a Google search, not that you can follow everything, but if you did a Google search on yoga injuries, you're going to find there's a lot of injuries in, in modern yoga. Um, and so I, I favor Qigong both for its philosophy, but also its, its, its gentleness of movement and its much more kind of meditative view. But I'm also... Matt Branham, who's one of our staff teachers and the chairman of our board, is an outstanding Qigong teacher, so that might be why. But uh, yoga seen as an exercise and a way to maintain flexibility is, I think it's a good thing, though. So um, anyway, uh, I got I to gotta go, but uh, I think our class is over. We're going to conclude this next week. I don't think I finished with Meta um, last week, but I'd like to finish our class with Meta. So I will, and then uh, I look forward to seeing you all next week. And remember, we have uh, classes on Tuesday evening, my time, and Saturday morning, my time as well. So, the Karaniya Metta Sutta. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath, and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.